I'm going in this session to not so much look at the uh, the content uh, of Paul's speech uh, towards the, uh, the Areopagus as his method, as the approach that Paul took to uh, communicating the gospel to this uh, Greek culture. He had come um, from Jewish culture. And if you look at other places uh, in Acts, it describes his uh, method of evangelizing Jews, uh, going into the synagogue, reasoning with them on the basis of the what we would now call the Old Testament scriptures. That was, of course, common ground between them. And he had a, a, a common set of uh, thought forms, uh, ideas that he could use to communicate the gospel. But when he comes to this new pagan culture, he does not do that. He does not start quoting the Old Testament scripture at them because they didn't know that. That was not their cultural background. That's not their familiar ideas and thought forms. Instead, he delves into their culture uh, and some things in it he affirms, some things he criticizes, but he starts from where they are in order to bring them closer to him rather than um, making them do all the legwork, uh, making all the effort to understand him, as it were. Uh, I've given this quite a long title. It's somewhat of a vogue for giving uh, short titles to philosophy books and so on these days. Um, but you know, back in the 18th century, if you didn't have a, a, a title that filled up the whole introduction to page, you weren't writing a proper book. So um, here's uh, my title for this, The Damaris Approach. And you noticed uh, the name of a woman called Damaris at the end of Acts chapter 17 there. Uh, how Paul in Athens provides a biblical basis for engaging with popular culture through classical rhetoric. But a little bit of our own popular culture just to uh, bridge this gap to start us off with. Um, Paul here in Raphael's painting of Paul preaching in Athens uh, facing a task a little bit like that by the character Morpheus in the first Matrix film trying to explain to Neo that his whole view of the world is wrong he wants to communicate this to him to convince him to take up a different world view um, St Paul adopts a similar strategy to that adopted by Morpheus in this scene uh, from the Matrix so Morpheus starts off by appealing to a felt need inside Neo and there's something you sort of know about but you, don't, you know you don't know enough about it. Do you want to know what the Matrix is? And then he, he leans in and says, yes. And do you want to know what you're talking about when you talk about the unknown God? Yes, tell, tell us more. Um, Paul starts by appealing to a felt need that he sees in their culture and building on that bridge. So let's uh, jump in with Aristotle here. He's a very famous ancient Greek philosopher. And uh, one of his works, titled On Rhetoric, rhetoric, uh, as we'll see, is basically to do with communicating well. Uh, and Aristotle is uh, something of a, a big name in this field, shall we say. Um, I'm just going to take you through some selected quotes from the beginning of Aristotle's rhetoric. You can find the whole thing on the internet uh, for free. I just want to take you, walk you through this quote in three chunks. It starts off by saying, 
of the modes of persuasion, the ways of persuading people, furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. And although Aristotle is talking about the spoken word, a lot of what he says would apply, I think, to uh, media that also use uh, visuals and music and audio and so on. The first kind, which is called ethos, ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. The second, pathos, pathos, depends on uh, putting the audience into a certain frame of mind, affecting their, their mood. Uh, and the third, logos, on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. So we've got these three elements of rhetoric, ethos, your ca the character that comes across, pathos, the way in which you move the feelings and emotions of the audience primarily, and logos, the rational content that's being communicated. Okay? And Aristotle says, persuasion is achieved by the speaker's personal character when the speech is supposed to so spoken as to make us think him credible. A lot we now we now know from psychological studies that a lot of communication is in things that have nothing to do with the actual words that are spoken. Most of the information that I'm actually conveying to you now, you're taking in at various subconscious levels. You're maybe more conscious of it now because I've said it. Um, to do with uh, my attitude my confidence in front of you, the way that I might look you in the eye or look around the audience as I'm speaking, all these kind of subtle signs that you're kind of assessing all the time of, you know, does this guy seem like someone who knows what he's going on about? Can I take him as a trustworthy source of information? And so on and so forth. Uh, it is not true, says Aristotle, as some writers assume in their treatise on rhetoric, that the personal goodness revealed by the speaker contributes nothing to his power of persuasion. On the contrary, his character may almost be called the most effective means of persuasion he possesses. So coming across as uh, what the English would call a good egg, a good sort, a nice chap. Um, we would sometimes have this um, stock phrase in, in English that it's more important to win the person than to win the argument. If you win the argument, but you put the person off, make them antagonistic towards you, you've burnt your bridges, you've, you've cut off any further communication possibilities. If you lose the argument, but they think, I really enjoyed talking with, with him, with her, you might get a second chance. It's more important to win the person than the argument. So then Aristotle goes on, secondly, persuasion may come through the hearers when, when the speech stirs their emotions, that the hearers themselves may have certain emotional uh, reactions, certain feelings about what's going on that may move them uh, in your direction, as it were. Uh, our judgments when we are pleased and friendly are not the same as when we are pained and hostile. If I'm well disposed towards you, if I like you, I'm more likely to take what you say seriously than if I, I don't like you and I just kind of write you off because I think, well, I'm not listening to you. You're, you're a horrible person. You know? Thirdly, persuasion is affected through the speech itself when we have proved a truth by means of the persuasive arguments suitable to the case in question. 
so that is foundational that there's got to be good content communicated but it has to be communicated uh, well in a persuasive way that doesn't put the audience off and so on okay finally last little bit of quote here from Aristotle he summarizes there are then these three means of affecting persuasion changing people's minds uh, the man who is to be uh, in, in command of them uh, must it is clear be able to reason logically to understand human character and goodness in their various forms and to understand the emotions that is to name them and describe them know their causes the ways in which they might be excited that is might be caused um, so you think of the way in which we were watching uh, the film Gran Torino the other evening some of us and um, that film stirred all sorts of emotions in the audience not just by the script the dialogue that was spoken by the characters but by means of things like the way in which the camera moved about the way in which certain music was used at certain times in the film to give you subconscious clues as to what was going on and so on um, so there's a lot of different elements and you can apply this to things beyond just the written word so in summary rhetoric's the art of effective communication and persuasion or it's the study of that and it traditionally encompasses these three interrelated areas of study ethos how the character and credibility of a speaker influences the audience to consider them believable pathos the use of emotional appeals to alter an, uh, an audience judgment uh, and that I think would include things like like communicating by telling a story uh, or presenting this topic in some way that evokes strong emotions or sympathy empathy uh, understanding uh, at an emotional level rather than just a merely purely sort of head knowledge rational level in an audience and logos the use of reasoning to construct an argument so good rhetoric we could say would involve an intellectually and morally credible source a good ethos presenting a sound argument good logos in a way that ought to evoke ought to evoke strong emotional response from an audience good pathos but of course you could have bad rhetoric which would include one or more of these um, a, a, a bad character or someone with low credibility presenting a, a bad argument an unsound argument or no argument at all just trying to convince people by affecting their emotional state uh, in a, a way that fails to evoke any emotional response or even worse would evoke an illegitimate emotional response getting a crowd worked up about something getting really angry until they riot yeah, be bad rhetoric <laughs> now here's the, the link from uh, Aristotle that classical background into Paul effective evangelism and effective apologetics requires good rhetoric here is Paul writing in the book of Colossians um, chapter 4 verses 4 to 6 and he's asking people to pray for him in his work as an evangelist and here is what he asks them to pray for him he says please pray that I will make the message the gospel as clear as possible when you are with unbelievers always make good use of the time be pleasant ethos 
be pleasant, and hold their interest, pathos. When you speak the message, choose your words carefully, logos, and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. The ending of that verse makes me think he probably knows about 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. I think it's very interesting that when Paul is describing how to be a good evangelist, he not only mentions the three elements of classical rhetoric as Aristotle, he mentions them in the same order that Aristotle introduces them in his book on rhetoric as well. Now, I don't know, it would be hard to to prove unless we sort of dug up something with Paul's scribbled margin notes on it or something, whether or not Paul knew about Aristotle's rhetoric. You might think that this is some evidence that he did, but at least implicitly, even if not explicitly, it's implicitly Paul knew the same thing about good communication as Aristotle did. So then turning to Paul in Athens, Acts chapter 17 that we've just read, as a case study, and I'll take it through sort of a few verses at a time and give you some background information, some interesting quotes on what's going on, and so on. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, emotionally moved, uh, to see that the city was full of idols. Um, Modern people sometimes have difficulty in seeing what the big problem with idols is. Um, They think of them just as little... um, wooden or carved statues that ancient people used to used to worship and maybe you know that was a problem in the old days and it's not a problem today I think this is a very good explanation of the nature of an idol by an American Catholic philosopher called Peter Kreeft whom uh, I like very much has a good writing style I think he says an idol is anything that is not God but is treated as God that's what that's a definition of an idol any creature set up as our final end, our, as our goal, our hope, meaning, our joy, anything, anything can be an idol. Uh, every divine attribute separated from the divine person becomes an idol. God is truth, but truth is not God. And if you treat truth as God, it's becoming an idol. God is just. But justice is not God. And you just separate justice out from all of the other divine attributes and just focused on that, it becomes an idol. The first commandment, love the Lord your God, etc., is surely the most frequently broken. And the Apostle John does well to end his first letter with the warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Since an idol is not God, no matter how sincerely or passionately it's treated as God, it is bound to break the heart of its worshipper sooner or later. He's taking a stand against a sort of postmodern view that we could say, well, you have your God, I'll have my God, that's God to me, that should be fine. Because if there is such a thing as God, and that's tr- that is true that there's God, and you treat something that's not God as God, you're going to end up in problems. So he says, good motives for idolatry cannot remove the objective fact that the idol is an unreality. You can't get blood from a stone or divine joy from non-divine things. Uh, So Paul sees these Athenians worshipping idols, putting something else other than God first in their lives, and 
he's troubled by it. You might say his heart goes out to them. So he, Paul, reasoned, and I think it's very important, I've highlighted that word reasoned there, reasoned in the synagogues, as was his usual practice, with both Jew and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Let's take reason first. The new atheists who I mentioned earlier, uh, one of their particular critiques of Christianity is that they say, to be a Christian means having faith, and having faith means believing things without evidence. Indeed, some of them say, having faith means believing things against the evidence. That's what faith is. Well, if that's what faith is, then I'm as against it as the new atheists are, because that is not what the Bible thinks faith is. In biblical terms, faith means trust. I think a really good modern-day English translation would be the word trust. And trust can be founded in good reasons, good evidence, good reasons to think that the person you're trusting is trustworthy. Um, So just a few examples of Paul using reason in his evangelism, his apologetics, um, Acts chapter 18 and 19, uh, Paul reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He, uh, he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. He had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He hired this lecture hall and daily had debates, discussions with people about the gospel. Uh, Paul wrote of defending and confirming the gospel, answering objections and putting forward positive reasons for believing in Philippians 1.7. And 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul urges Christians, he says, stop thinking like children in regard to evil be as infants, but in your thinking be as adults. And Colossians 4.6, he says, choose your words carefully, as we've seen, and be ready to give answers, give uh, apologia, apologetics to anyone who asks questions. So Paul is very hot on on the logos element of good rhetoric. And we also had a mention there of of the marketplace in Athens. Here it is, what's left of it anyway. This is the uh, marketplace from Athens. And you see it's got this large square and then around the square were columns and there would have been sort of shops, a sort of colonnade, covered walkway all the way around this square and in one of those colonnades one that had uh, painted frescoes actually, uh, groups of philosophers used to meet to discuss and debate but it's also sort of the marketplace and it's also to do with civil society this uh, shows this information here, the Agora was an open place of assembly that's what it means, place of assembly in ancient Greek city-states Early in Greek history, freeborn male landowners, who were the citizens, um, would gather in the Agora for military duty or to hear statements of the ruling king or council. Later on, the Agora also served as a marketplace where merchants kept stalls or shops to sell their goods in those colonnades around the square. And from this twin function of the Agora as a political and commercial space come two Greek verbs, uh, agorazo, to shop, and agorio, to speak in public. These kind of words come to mean uh, from this uh, function of this space. And so because some of the philosophers used one of the colonnades in the Agora, 
it's not surprising that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Um, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. It seems that they, he, Paul was preaching, as he usually did, in Jesus and the resurrection. And they, they thought that Paul was trying to introduce two new polytheistic gods into the city-state. The god Jesus and the god resurrection. Um, they didn't quite understand the terminology because that came from this whole Jewish background tradition and they didn't understand what these, these concepts were really and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection that's their kind of misunderstanding of what he's saying a uh, little bit of background on the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers uh, Epicu- Epicureanism nice long word it's a system of philosophy based on the teachings of a particular philosopher called Epicurus. This is meant to be him. And he was a hedonist. A hedonist is someone who thinks that the purpose of life is physical, sensual pleasure. Okay, um, You get as much physical, sensual pleasure out of life as you can, and that's the whole kind of be-all and end-all of life. Uh, Epicurus was an atomic materialist following in the footsteps of Democritus who had come up with the the idea of atoms from a Greek word meaning the the smallest indivisible uncuttable up bit of material reality that was their idea and uh, Democritus put forward this, this theory that everything is made up of different atoms with kind of different hooks on them that all link up in different ways and that makes different things a start of atomic theory way back in philosophy before we had any um, scientific uh, confirmation that something along those lines uh, was the case. Uh, Epicureanism was originally a challenge opposed to uh, Platonist philosophy, but later on it became the main opponent of Stoicism, the Stoics. So the Epicureans and the Stoics disagree with each other. They're two opposing factions of philosophers in Athens at this time. Um, in contemporary terms, think of people like um, the British um, philosopher Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins or any kind of modern day materialist, naturalist, atheist. They're kind of in the tradition of the Epicureans, at least somewhat. Stoicism, on the other hand, uh, is a sort of philosophy, a way of life uh, with some similarities to Buddhism or pantheistic worldview, the view that uh, everything is God or certain types of New Age thinking. You have this phrase, the New Age movement. Um, I don't think there's really a a clear modern-day parallel, but if you think in those kind of terms, you're in the right ballpark, as the Americans would say. Is that... Okay. Um, They thought that only by becoming what they called a sage, a wise man, a clear and unbiased thinker, could you become morally free by being able to understand the universal reason or word, the logos, which is a term that the Apostle John picks up at the beginning of John's Gospel when he says, in the beginning was the word, we translate it in English, in the beginning was the logos, the reason, the rationality that pervades the universe. But of course, for the Bible, that rationality is something that transcends, goes beyond the universe and has come in, created the universe and has incarnated become flesh within the universe in the person of Christ, the word, the Logos of God. So there's John making a link to uh, Stoic philosophy to try and communicate this idea of the incarnation in terms that they might be able to partially grasp. 
Um, little quote here from H. Wayne House. He says, The examples that Paul used in his speech in, in the Areopagus to develop his theology of God, uh, talking about God doesn't need temples, he doesn't need services, his, his imminence, his being within the universe, and his uh, immateriality, his not being physical, were shared beliefs with the Stoics listening to him, but not the Epicureans. But of course, the, the Stoics were more sort of pantheistic. God is just the universe and doesn't, isn't beyond the universe, whereas Paul, of course, being a theist, has a more God is beyond the universe. But he's, he's making as many points of, of, well, I agree with you here. Yes, God is within the world. He's imminent. He's present. He's among us. But I also want to say he's beyond us. He transcends us. He goes beyond the universe and so on. So this name Stoic actually uh, derives from the porch, the uh, Stoa Poikilai, if I've pronounced that correctly, probably not, in the Agora in Athens. Here's a reconstruction of what it might have looked like, where the members of this particular school of philosophy congregated and held their lectures. So that's why Paul gets drawn into this debate with them. Um, this is a noted American philosopher of religion called Alvin Plantinga, of uh, Dutch extraction. And he basically says that these worldviews that Paul was meeting in Athens are still the main competitors, the main opposition to Christianity today. Because he likens the Epicureans to the materialists and the Stoics to postmodernists a little bit more um, in, in Plantinga's thinking. Um, but let's not go into the details it's harder to draw the analogy with the, with the Stoics than with the Epicureans I think um, but there we go so carry on then they took him they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting you're bringing some strange ideas uh, to our ears and we would like to know what they mean they want to kind of quiz him um, about perhaps these new gods that he wants to introduce because one of the, the functions of the, the council that met at the Areopagus was to make judgments on religious issues. If you wanted to introduce a new deity to the city, you needed to set up a new altar to your god, buy some land, have some functionaries, have a holiday in the official calendar. You needed to convince this council to let your god become part of the, the pantheon, uh, the set of gods that were associated with that city. And they think that Paul is trying to introduce two new gods to the city, and so they bring him before the official council that's going to decide this matter. Well, Paul takes the opportunity, but he wants to basically say to them, no, I'm not just trying to introduce a couple of new gods alongside your other gods. I'm trying to introduce you to God. And one of the interesting things about the situation is you've got the, the official kind of state religion, these polytheistic gods on the one hand, and you've got these, in this council, Epicurean philosophers who are materialists, and these stoic philosophers who just think that God is kind of this reason within nature, and they don't really endorse the sort of what they might have seen as the popular sort of uh, uh, man in the street kind of religion. And Paul kind of plays off this tension there in that culture as well. Um, 
Luke adds this, this interesting note. He says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is a culture obsessed with the latest thing and talking about it and gossiping about it. Um, Paul's been to the marketplace. He's been to the cultural, civic and philosophical heart. It's like a, a cross between the, the, the supermarket, uh, OK magazine and the university. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all rolled up into one. Uh, here's a very interesting quote from a guy called Theophratus from the um, 3rd, 4th century BC in his uh, characters. And he says this about the Athenians. Truly, there seems to be a most wearisome mode of life, passing entire days, as they do, in running from shop to shop, from the portico to the forum, with no other business than to promulgate, to transmit idle tales, by which to afflict the ears of all they meet. Um, so it's not just Luke saying this about the Athenians, this was clearly uh, a kind of fairly common view of uh, the Athenian way of life. Uh, In Greek, pagos means big piece of rock. Areopagos. Here is the big piece of rock. Um, I don't know whether the council met by sitting on top of the big bit of rock or by sitting at its foot. Um, Don't know if we've got the archaeology to uh, determine that, but it's certainly named after this particular large chunk of rock in Athens. Here's a quote from uh, John Mark Reynolds from a paper that we'll distribute um, after um, this session as well. Uh, He's got a good sort of background paper on this. He says, In between the great Acropolis and the marketplace, the Agora, stood a small hill which the ancient Athenians called the Areopagus. It had served from deepest antiquity, from way back, as an Athenian court. On the hill of the Areopagus, the archons, that is the members of the court, met and even under the democracy that was down there they retained some power especially over murder cases and sacrilege religious cases by the time of paul it was a favorite meeting place for intellectuals where the judgments were over more over the ideas of men than over men themselves so saint paul would have walked through the marketplace where philosophy was born to the hill where religious judgments had traditionally been made in the shadow of the greatest temple of religion of Homer and of Delphi. Athens was still, in this time, symbolically one of the great centres of ancient paganism and as a symbol had no equal, for it contained great icons of both pagan religion and pagan philosophy. And into this context comes Paul bringing the gospel and wanting to effectively communicate it to them and change history. H. Wayne House again. This is uh, David's painting of the death of Socrates, who was another ancient Greek philosopher, uh, whose pupil Plato um, wrote uh, an account of Socrates' trial before the same council that Paul's now at. And um, Socrates, in the end, uh, was convicted by this court and he drank hemlock, poisoned himself, rather than going into exile, uh, accused of uh, trying to introduce uh, different gods than the city-state worshipped. Um, It is this council before whom Socrates also appeared and was sentenced to death for introducing the youth of Athens to strange deities. Luke may be attempting to draw some parallel between Socrates and Paul, and the address of Paul, 
says Wayne House, is well-organized and well-reasoned. First, he treated his audience with respect, good ethos, um, even using the same phrase of Socrates from his apology, from the Plato's account of the court case, where Socrates uses this phrase, uh, men of Athens, when he uh, 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 translated uh, there, uh, in my translation, by people of Athens, slightly more inclusive translation, um, but this is a phrase that might be echoing what happened in the same place a couple of hundred years earlier with Socrates. So then Paul stood up before the meeting and he makes this speech. People of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious, for as I walked around, looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. This is not that altar, but it is an altar to an unknown god. This is from the Palatine Hill in Rome, and it's uh, an altar bearing the inscription to an unknown god. So it was clearly not uh, uh, an unfamiliar kind of thing in the ancient world to have such an altar to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See the parallel here between Paul and the Athenians and Morpheus and Neo, drawing them in to something that they kind of know about, they, they kind of want to know more about, and he's saying, I, I'm going to tell you more about it. And they're going to say, well, is he? Are we going to trust him? And so on. Uh, the God who made the world uh, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples, he says, and the Stoics are kind of going, yeah, yeah that's right, and so on. He's, and then he's playing on the differences between the Stoics and the Epicureans, the differences between them and the official state religion of the polytheism and so on. And during the course of his speech, he quotes from a couple of Greek uh, philosophers, stroke poets, playwrights. Um, it wasn't uh, unusual in the ancient world to do your philosophy in the form of writing poetry or doing a play. And he quotes from a Cretan philosopher called uh, Epimenides, and from a Sicilian Stoic philosopher called Aratus. Uh, for in, in him we live and move and have our being, from the Cretan, and as some of your own poets have said, says Paul, we are his offspring. We're sort of like God, made in the image of God, and so on. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or something you can make and have, you have to um, give things to because it depends on you. No, we depend on God. Uh, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for his set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So then Paul moves on to clearing up this misunderstanding that Jesus and the resurrection are two different gods. He's saying, no, Jesus is the incarnate Logos of God, and that's been proven to us by God by the fact that he raised him up from the dead, so that we know that Jesus is the one who's going to judge. Um, and the reason that they had these altars to an unknown God was out of partly piety but partly fear as well because you have a god you want to keep on their good side you want to sacrifice things to them give them gifts and so on and you know what if there's a god out there that we don't know about and he gets angry or she gets angry that we're not doing the right things that we should be we better cover our backsides and have an altar to the unknown god and we'll do things there and then we're kind of covering our bases a bit think the ancient Athenians and Paul is playing into that and saying yeah there is there is going to be a judgment 
but it's in this monotheistic culture and I'm giving you proof, uh, evidence for it and so on um, so it's a very cleverly constructed speech to communicate using good rhetoric the gospel in that cultural context and some of them sort of sneered at him some of them said we want to hear more about it he got all sorts of different reactions off this speech as you would expect but it was effective with some people at least some of the people became followers of Paul and believed and among them was Dionysus a member of the Areopagus and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others and of course Damaris is named after this lady from the end of Acts chapter 17 and that's why I call this approach that Paul took the Damaris approach because this is the approach to communicating the gospel that won over Damaris to the kingdom so if we look at that speech and what Paul does in terms of Aristotle's classical rhetoric of the ethos Paul showed a deep interest in and understanding of their culture their history, their worldviews. He didn't come off just as some ignorant oik who wanted to sell them what he knew without knowing and taking any interest in them. He demonstrated that from the quotes that he used and the whole approach that he took. Pathos, Paul latched onto the Athenian religious piety, stroke fear, so he was engaging them at a heart level as well as a mind level. And he exploited these points of agreement, but also disagreement, um, with and between the, the Stoics, the Epicureans and the city-state religion and in terms of Logos Paul critiqued their philosophical theology he agreed with as much as he could but then where he had to draw a line he critiqued their view of God of deity and he discussed historical revelation in that speech and he gives evidence for Jesus' resurrection what we have is clearly a sort of a, a, a summary of what Paul said. It's not a, a court transcript, word for word. It would have been a very short speech uh, for the situation. Um, but Luke gives us an outline of the main points, uh, I think, that Paul touches upon. So Paul, know, knowing his classical rhetoric, I think, uses all three elements very well in this context. Which, which I think is a good model, at least, for how we could do similar things. Uh, ethos we must show a deep interest in an understanding of our culture the culture and worldviews of the people we want to communicate and dialogue with in terms of pathos we have to address people's felt needs that's why I wrote that, that book on I wish I could believe in meaning to engage with someone's felt needs um, to um, this might be a bit of a difficult phrase and I've uh, misspelt it here in the powerpoint as well uh, engender what's called cognitive dissonance psychologists will talk about cognitive dissonance that's when you have two ideas that you want to believe both of them but they don't seem to fit together you think well I think this but I think this and hang on those two things don't seem to go together so I can't think both of them can I but but which one should I change? Do I have to get rid of one? Do I have to change them? Well, what do I do? Ugh. You get this kind of feeling of uneasiness about our lives when we notice that we're, we're not kind of living consistently or thinking consistently. Um, and if, uh, as Francis Schaeffer particularly approach that he took to evangelism was trying to help people to see that without God they would inevitably be living with some cognitive dissonance and to use that as a point of entry of felt need for, for the gospel story um, so we need to do what Nick Pollard calls positive deconstruction affirming truth but critiquing 
falsehood. Um, which, of course, brings us into logos. We need to both use negative and positive apologetics using philosophical and evidential arguments. You know, Paul argues with them about their philosophical theology, but he also argues with them about things like, you know, I'm sure, I saw, as he says in other places, I saw the risen Christ. I'm an eyewitness to this as a historical reality. If you draw up a grid, a two-by-two two grid, uh, of study and communication in one axis, and then at the other axis, uh, study and communication of Christianity and culture. So we have this, uh, and fill this out, this two-by-two two grid. In terms of studying Christianity, Paul he believed in and followed Jesus and he engaged clearly in rigorous study of the Old Testament scriptures he was from a Pharisee school um, and the early church witnesses we know in various places he reports how he went to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles the, eye, the other eyewitnesses with Peter and John and James and to check that his message was the same as theirs he uh, investigates it uh, so he studies all of these things in order to understand and respond to Jesus with integrity and in terms of communicating Christianity, Paul has a great respect for people and their freedom uh, as, as agents uh, and acted as a humble guide to Jesus. He's not trying to sell them something. Um, he, you know, they have different reactions to him. He doesn't get all uppity. Um, if people don't receive his message, he moves on. He tries something else. He moves on to another group of people and so on. And Paul invited people to consider and respond to the message of Jesus uh, including the answers the gospel about Jesus provides to questions raised by popular culture. In terms of studying culture, Paul clearly had a great respect for contemporary popular culture, and by respect here doesn't have to include affirming, endorsing everything about it, but taking it seriously, I mean. Because people are made in the image of God, but they're fallen, and people produce culture, so culture must reflect something of the image of God, but also be fallen. Um, and he believed that it's an expression of this fallen search for answers to fundamental questions. That's why he latches onto this, the unknown God altar. And he engaged in clearly rigorous study of the context and co uh, content of that culture, whether it was Jewish or pagan. I think I've, I've shown that by the background that I've delved into. So that he could really understand and respond to the underlying worldviews with integrity. And he's not just spouting off on the basis of a superficial understanding of them. And in terms of communication and culture, again, respect for people and their freedom, acting as a humble guide to contemporary popular culture. He was using it with knowledge and inviting people to evaluate and respond to the underlying worldviews, to think about their own view and get dissatisfied with it so that they might be more open to thinking about his view. Which you could simply translate, this is a, a document called the Demaris Approach that Nick Pollard and I cooked up in a car journey several years ago when we were thinking through, can we summarise our approach as Demaris to popular culture? Um, and here, again, you have study and communication of the Bible of Christianity, the biblical worldview, and of popular culture. And basically, we just said the same thing as I've just said about Paul in those grid, but saying, we as Demaris are going to do this. We're going to have respect for people. We're going to study things in depth and so on.